0: Amen, amen. Good morning again. Thank you, Grant. Well, this morning we're going to be treated to a story of surprises. A story of surprises. For some, a grim story. For others, a story of immeasurable joy. If you've been with us during our study of Romans 9, you know that Paul so far has written to us 23 verses addressing a very significant problem in his mind, and in the minds of many that were in the church at Rome in the first century. And here's the problem. God's chosen people seem to have been rejected. That was the impression in first century Rome. God's chosen people seem to have been rejected. Why? Because the church in Paul's day was filling up with scores of Gentiles. And at the same time, the vast majority of Jews in the first century were turning their back On their own Jewish Messiah. So, rhetorically, Paul has asked the question: when it comes to the Jews, has God's word failed? Has it failed? And of course, the answer was no, may it never be. And the explanation that Paul gave was very clear: here's why God's word has not failed, because he never promised, nor did he intend to grant eternal life to every ethnic Jew. Why is that true? Because not every person within ethnic Israel is a part of believing Israel. Make sense? And the discovery that only a portion or a remnant of God's chosen nation is going to be saved, for the casual Bible reader, that's very surprising. And even more surprising is this that part of God's plan has always been, always going back to Genesis to incorporate a group of chosen people from outside of Israel, outside of Israel, Gentiles, into his eternal family. So, so catch the full scope of this surprise that we have here, this sort of cosmic turnaround. A nation of people who thought they were entitled to God's approval are surprised to find that their bloodline is not sufficient to save them. And on the flip side, another group of people who always felt rejected and set aside because of their ancestry, all of a sudden finds itself at the center of God's attention. That's surprising. This is, I guess, what we would call a Cinderella story, right? The pretentious stepsisters go off to the ball thinking they're the center of everything. They leave Cinderella behind, but this miracle happens, and she ends up being the one who's chosen by the prince. It's a Cinderella story. If you stop and think about it, the scriptures are actually filled with those types of surprising things, things that run contrary to human expectations. God doesn't do what we imagine he will do, does he? God doesn't act as we would act if we were God, which clearly we're not. And he declared this truth through his prophet Isaiah. You know this. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, creatures, nor are your ways my ways. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who once said this, and I think this is really profound. He said, If it's I who determine where God is to be found, then I will always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected with my nature. But if God determines where he's to be found, then it will be in a place which is not at all congenial to me. That's really smart. Now, we can imagine some surprising things that God might do even today. See, we tend to we look at the Bible like lots of really great stories of miracles and things that God does that are pretty pretty cool. What about today? Is he still doing surprising things? The answer is absolutely. Think about a couple examples. A Christian husband and father loses his high paying corp- corporate job due to some injustice in the workplace. And we, we gather around him and we say, Where is God in this? Is he sovereign? Is he, is he, is he still in charge of things? Until that man feels a call to full time ministry and ends up impacting lives in a way that he never would have if he'd stayed in that corporate job. Wouldn't that be astonishing? What if it turns out that there's a single devoted missionary in a third world country who has more moral authority and greater impact on the kingdom of God than an entire convention of bishops and religious scholars? That'd be surprising, wouldn't it? What if it turned out that a man who had nothing more than an eighth-grade education and no access to a formal pulpit but had a huge heart to care for poor people and spread the gospel, that when he died, he, was, he pleased the Lord, he earned the crown of life, but a well-known TV preacher was exposed as a fraud at the judgment seat? That would be astonishing, wouldn't it? What if there was a famous athlete whose career was cut short by an injury but, but later on, by his testimony for Christ, he had more impact because of his suffering than scores of other athletes who thank God for making them rich and successful. Who would draw that up? Not us. But God's ways are not our ways. And what if it turned out that God's Messiah would take on human flesh and be born as a a helpless little baby, but be found by fishermen and centurions and prostitutes and lepers, but not be found by most in the religious establishment? Wouldn't, be God, wouldn't God be saying something about himself and his sovereign right to choose his own and to ordain the circumstances of their life and their service? Wouldn't that be a, a statement that God is making? Well, that's how God operates even today. This is the type of God that we serve. He sovereignly ordains all things. And he, in the process of that, he doesn't seek out our counsel. He does as he pleases, and he does it in his own way. We have no right to demand that he explain himself to us even even when he does something surprising to us. There's a famous line in C.S. Lewis's classic book The Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe. Susan, who's one of the main characters, is having a discussion with Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the book. And Mr. Beaver says, "Aslan is a lion. He's the great lion." "Oh," said Susan, "I thought he was a man." Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. The implication is that Aslan the lion is not tamed by anyone. No matter how good of a lion he is, he's still a lion. And when it comes to the God of the Bible, the same is true. God is absolutely good, but that doesn't mean that he's soft or tameable. God cannot be trained, God cannot be manipulated to respond to our commands or our wishes. He is sovereign. He does as he pleases. Amen. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9, and we'll continue this discussion. Romans chapter 9, we're going to cover verses 24 to 29 this morning and then next Sunday we'll finish uh, chapter 9. And many of you will say, Phew. "Let's get on to chapter 10, right?" Let's back up to verse 19, so we'll catch this in flow, but we're going to cover 24 to 29. Back up to verse 19, we'll read from there. Hear the word of the Lord. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called... Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant, the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left, us, left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Okay, there's a lot there. So quick recap on what Paul has said so far about how God has sovereignly worked with his people Israel. Let's remember the, the, the primary issue that Paul started with in those very first five verses of chapter 9. Do you remember what it was? He says, I have great sorrow in my heart. I have unceasing grief in my heart, he wrote. Why? He says, I wish I myself a curse cut off from my own people, the Jews. Cut off from my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul is grieving He's got, there's this widespread unbelief of his fellow Jews, and you can understand why he's so upset. Paul has gone all over the world to spread the gospel, and he's always had a heart for his people. The first thing he does when he gets to a city is do what? He goes to the synagogue because he loves his fellow Jews, and he wants them to trust in their own Messiah, but they haven't. There's this widespread unbelief of Jews, and so the question that comes from that is obvious. How can it be? How can it be That God has made so many promises to Israel, but at that moment, they appear that they're not going to be fulfilled. At least that's what a Jew who was in the church at Rome must have been thinking at that time. What about God's promises? Are they reliable? Can we count on God's word? It turns out that God's promises are more selective than we expected. This is surprising. This is not how we would have drawn it up. God's promises are more selective than we expected. God didn't promise to bless all of the physical descendants of Israel, but only some. And it turns out that there's always been a true Israel within this ethnic nation of Israel, some who are children of the flesh and others who are children of the promise. And God has the right to name which of these Israelites are part of the line of promise. That promise has come down through a very distinct chosen line from Abraham And through the seed of Isaac, but not Ishmael. And although Isaac had two sons and Esau was the older one who had the privileges, God decided in his sovereignty that his blessing would come through Jacob and not Esau. And now Paul knew as he wrote those those words in in Romans 9 that that was going to raise questions. People were going to be upset. Guess what? They're still upset about this today, right? These objections still float around in the church even today. So in verses 14 to 23, Paul deals with some of the questions that naturally would have arisen out of this idea that God chooses some, but not others. Is God unjust in this? It's the issue of fairness, right? We love as human beings, we love fairness. Is God unjust in choosing Jacob and not Esau? Especially, is he unfair? Is he unjust? If he made that choice while they were still in the womb. And before they had had a chance to do anything good or bad, is God unjust that he picked one and passed over the other? Seems unfair, doesn't it? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so Paul says, may it never be. May it never be said that God is unjust. We all deserve God's judgment, Paul reminds us. Every one of us is born on this, this path towards condemnation. And while we can spend a lifetime blaming other people for that, we can, we can blame God himself, we can blame Adam or Eve, we can blame our ancestors, we can blame our parents, whatever. The fact remains that we all sin. We all owe a debt because we violated God's law. Let me put it this way. We have all willfully chosen to sin against God, every one of us. So there's no room for blame shifting here. We owe that debt to God for violating his righteous law. And so as we all march headlong towards judgment, God is free to intervene as he pleases, to intervene in this man's life, but not that man's life. And there's no injustice in God choosing to save one, but passing over another. Because in one case, a man gets exactly what he deserves. And in the other case, he gets more than he deserves. And there's certainly no injustice in that. So God is free to show mercy to whomever he wishes. And then Paul goes a step further. He says, in fact, he's also free to raise up a man like Pharaoh, to demonstrate his power and glory to the ends of the earth and to harden Pharaoh's in his, Pharaoh in his own sinfulness and still ultimately be just in judging him as an object of his wrath. God is just in that. As the divine potter, God has the right to do all of these things. See, the potter takes this one lump of clay. And as I said last Sunday, this is really important to understand. That entire lump of clay is guilty. It's not an innocent lump that he makes wicked. It's all guilty. It's all a sinful lump of clay. But he has the divine right to make from that sinful lump of clay some vessels of mercy and other vessels of his wrath. How many of you guys have found this challenging over the last few weeks? Don't lie to me. This is hard stuff. This is really hard stuff, but it's important stuff because so much of our understanding of God and our understanding of salvation and our practical theology flows from a right understanding of how people are saved. Now, at verse 24, we come to this really important transition point in Paul's flow of thought because he's gone from speaking specifically about the Jews, but now he's going to talk about this new people that he's bringing together both Jew and Gentile. So let's back up to verse 23. We'll read the full sentence all the way through verse 24. Paul writes this, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, here's the key phrase, but also from among Gentiles. Folks, that's the surprise here. This is a surprising thing. This is the wonder of the gospel. Included among these vessels of mercy prepared for glory are not just chosen Israelites, but chosen non-Israelites, chosen Gentiles. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2, he says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who were formerly far off, not on the radar screen at all, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's an amen moment right there. That's amazing stuff. Praise Jesus, right? He's brought us near by his blood. We were far off, hopeless, but now he's brought us near as Gentiles. Paul continues, so then you are no longer strangers to God, no longer aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints, get this, members of God's very household, sons and daughters of the living God you Gentiles. And this is great news for all of us who weren't born with Jewish blood, right? I'm a Gentile. Many of you are as well. What we find out here and in other places in the New Testament is being born with a pagan background does not exclude you from becoming an object of God's mercy. For those of us who were raised in a non-Christian home or an irreligious home where God was trashed an atheist home, you are not excluded if God desires to have mercy upon you. Isn't that good news? For those of us who were raised in really tough circumstances, who were not given a solid moral foundation, who didn't understand what it meant to please God, you're not excluded as an object of mercy if God desires to have mercy upon you. That's good news. For those of us who participated in the most detestable sins imaginable, you look back on your past and you're like, ugh. Oh, I am so unworthy of God's love. You are not excluded from God's mercy if he wants to have mercy upon you. That's good news. In fact, the the fact is God seems to relish the idea of pouring out his mercy in surprising places. So the good news is that no matter how pagan you were or how messed up your life was, or your background or anything like that, the promise we're given in Romans and elsewhere is that you can experience his mercy and forgiveness if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ and make him the Lord of your life. Now you say, Jeff, well, hold on a second. You just talked about what man does. Hmm, that's next chapter. Because they work hand in hand, don't they? God's predestination, God's choosing, God's election, and within time and space, us repenting and trusting in Christ. They work hand in hand. None of us is beyond God's mercy if God desires to have mercy upon us. Now, the key phrase right here in the middle of verse 24 is this, whom he also called. That verb called, kaleo in the Greek, is such an important term in the New Testament. You cannot underestimate how important that term is, especially in the book of Romans. Three times already in this letter to the Romans, we've seen this word used. Remember back in 828, very famous verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together. All things, right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God works all things together for the good of those that God has called. Not for those who have inclined themselves toward God in their own strength, but whom God has called. In 830, those whom He predestined, He also called. And these that He called, He also, What? justified. And so we see calling is part of an unbreakable chain, sometimes referred to as the the golden chain of salvation, beginning before creation, occurring in time and space. Calling comes before justification, this idea that we're declared righteous by God. But before we can be justified, we have to be called. And that's the work that God does. And then finally, earlier in chapter 9, we heard this, for though the twins were not yet born... And had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And so here we see calling is the determining factor in whom God chooses and who he doesn't choose. It's according to his calling. And so theologically, calling becomes the basis for any of us being included among God's people. It's not genealogy. It's not law-keeping, it's not works, it's not your will, it's his will. Because remember, Paul's already said this very clearly. How many people seek after God? None. Nobody seeks after God in their own power. Nobody does. Nobody comes to him in their own power. Nobody comes to God by their own will. What happens is people respond to God's calling, his drawing. That's how it happens. The entire book of Romans to this point, especially in chapters 8 and 9, emphasize that truth, that it's God and not man who is the sovereign force behind our salvation. He doesn't leave his decreed purposes up to the choices of sinful men and women. He has mercy on whomever he has mercy. And he initiates that mercy in our lives by this, what we call this effectual call of the gospel irresistible grace. He draws us to himself. He calls us from death to life. He makes us alive in Christ. He gives us the gift of faith so that we can turn to God and be saved. But it's all a work of his. Does he violate our will? Absolutely not. What he does is he changes our affections. And get this, he causes us to be willing to respond. He changes our hearts. This is what we needed. We needed a new heart, didn't we? Because it was, it was dead in our sins and trespasses. He comes in, he calls us, he gives us that new heart, and he causes us to be willing to respond and be saved. God's good, isn't he? So that word calling in verse 24 is so important, especially for us Gentiles, right? Gentiles, woo! Amen. All right, before we go on, let me share just a couple of applications that come out of This important verse in verse 24. A couple of important applications. Here's the first one. Stop being unsurprised by this. That's actually a double negative, isn't it? So let me see if I can can do it better. Make sure you always remain surprised and overjoyed at that amazing truth that God has called you. Don't be complacent about this, folks. I'm begging you. Don't be complacent about this. As a Gentile, know who you were once you were cut off from the covenant community. You were without hope in this world, but now you've been brought near to God by the sacrifice of one who stood in your place and suffered and died for you. How how can we let that grow stale? Work hard to make sure you don't grow complacent about this. Don't allow yourself to take God's mercy for granted. See, there's this weird principle that's true about human beings, and we all know this is true. As human beings, we can become so familiar with extraordinary things that they become ordinary. You know what I mean by that? We're so used to extraordinary things that we go, eh, that's okay. Think of of how many of you guys have been to a circus. You, You go to a circus and you see these amazing acts, right? I mean, just things you're like... No human being should be able to do that. But they do it night after night after night, don't they? So pretty soon we go, oh, I've seen a trapeze thing. I've seen that. I've seen the lion taming. That's ordinary. Seriously? We've become numb to it because it's become ordinary. But it's not. Same thing with athletes. You know, LeBron James, I hear, is, is coming to L.A., right? Right? Was that you, Nate? (laughs) LeBron James is going to go out and score 35 points every night. And we're going to go, okay. Do you know how hard it is to score 35 points in an NBA game against NBA players? He'll do it night after night after night and we'll go, eh. We expect that. We can grow complacent about the extraordinary. And that can happen with us in the gospel, folks. We can grow numb to it. All right, well, God decided to include Gentiles in his plan of salvation. Eh. Seriously? Think about that for a second. We're headed towards an eternity in hell, but God chooses to intervene and save us, and not only save us, but then bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we go, eh, what's for lunch? If you grew up in a Christian home, you're really tempted to this, right? Because you, you've been around the gospel all of your life, or you've been saved for 40 years. And you've heard this message so many times. Don't let it become ordinary to you. Work hard at this. There's a variety of signs. You know, I I always talk about our spiritual dashboard, and when the light goes off that there's a warning, there's a whole bunch of signs on our spiritual dashboard that could be flashing that tell you, I'm growing complacent. If you're becoming a grumbler about how hard life is, you may be growing complacent about the gospel. You've forgotten how blessed you really are. Maybe you've, uh, you've become more concerned about laying up treasures here on earth than in heaven. And it could be because you've forgotten how blessed you are by God. Maybe you found yourself envying the lives of unbelievers who are rich or famous or powerful. You started to think about, well, I'd like to be more like that. You, you've sort of grown cold to the extraordinary thing that Christ has done for you. That'd be a sign, wouldn't it? Worst of all, if you've grown indifferent about sharing the gospel with lost people. You, you've sort of forgotten about outreach and missions. You're like, ah, well, look, I'm in. So, you know, other people got to figure it out, I guess. That, that's a flashing light on your dashboard that perhaps you've really forgotten about how lavish God's grace is upon you. Have you let the extraordinary thing that Christ has done for you become ordinary in your heart? May it never be. This is why we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself all the time, daily. Reminding yourself, God has called me by name as a vessel of his mercy. I'm a precious vessel of his mercy. And were it not for him moving in my life, I would be the opposite. I would be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Preach the gospel to yourself. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Resist entitlement. As Christians, if we're not careful, if we're not thinking rightly, We can find ourselves taking a posture similar to the Jews in Paul's day. I'm entitled to God's approval. He owes me this. I'm a chosen person. And those other people, those other ones out there, they're unclean. But I'm in because I'm chosen. And that attitude can come out in all kinds of ugly ways. How somebody looks on the outside, the, the, cur- the culture that they come from, the language that they speak, and yes, even the color of their skin. Well, we're chosen by God. Those people are not like us. Sadly, that attitude does exist among hypocrites who gather to worship Christ on Sunday morning. So hear me now. In heaven, there will be a great multitude of worshipers from every nation, every tribe, every language, every culture, and every race. There will be no racism in eternity. And so since we're now practicing for eternity here, we should give no quarter to racism in the church today. None. None. We are a racially blended family because all of us, without distinction, were adopted into God's family. All of us, without distinction, are saved for one reason, not because of what we look like, what race we come from, what culture we come from, not because we're something special, but because of God's mercy, period, period. And what unites us and what transcends race and culture and language is our identity in Christ. Christ. We're to rise above all that stuff. The world can't figure this out, by the way, right? They're getting more divided by race every single day. What should the church do? Rise up as a shining light on the hill that says, this is what transcends all of those differences. We're found in Christ. May we celebrate our differences and learn from each other as God gathers together his redeemed people in a surprising way that makes the world have to stop and look and say, huh? that's different. That's different than what I see around me. So two important applications that come out of this. Remember, the Jews would have been super entitled. What? Gentiles? Those unclean people? We're the chosen people. And God says, hmm, it's not the way I do things. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. So be careful lest we grow complacent or entitled. All right, we got to move on because we still got five verses, right? (laughs) We got this. Just a few Old Testament quotes, nothing big. Do you see all those Old Testament quotes, verses 25 to 29? Now, why is Paul going to appeal to the Old Testament here? To make his point about Gentiles, does that make any sense? Well, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he's particularly focused on talking to his fellow Jewish Christians in the church at Rome, and he figures the best way to teach about divine election is to point them back to the Old Testament because that's the word that they trusted. It's interesting to note that he's almost moving chronologically through the Old Testament canon. Started with the patriarchs, right? Talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he went to the Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh. And now here he's going to turn to the prophets. First to a minor prophet and then to a major prophet. Now remember, as we start to read in verse 25, Paul's made this important point about Gentiles. And again, this is a great surprise. He's going to prove his point about Gentiles from the Old Testament. The last place that you would expect him to go. Look at verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. Now, some translations say something to this effect. And she who was unloved, I will call my loved one. Verse 26. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people. There they shall be called sons or children of the living God. Okay, so Hosea. So there's a couple... Uh, references here Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 and Hosea ver- chapter 1 verse 10 let me give you a really quick background on the prophecy of Hosea so you can understand what's going on here Hosea prophesied in a great time of apostasy in Israel okay the nation of Israel at that time had been divided into two separate kingdoms after the reign of Solomon okay Solomon reigned over this united kingdom and then it was broken up into two right you guys remember that In the north, 10 tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes, led by a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam broke off from the others. In the south, how many more tribes? Good math majors. Two tribes in the south who remained loyal to the son of Solomon, Solomon the man named Rehoboam. So we had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Very good. So the northern kingdom of Israel, to whom Hosea was writing was particularly disobedient to God. In fact, you look at the history of Israel, not one godly king in the north, not one, particularly disobedient. And the judgment that God brought upon Israel was to be invaded and defeated and carried off and scattered by those nasty people, the Assyrians. They were invaded, they were conquered, and the people were scattered all over the ancient world, never to return to the promised land captured, taken away, never to return. This is the 8th century BC. So as Hosea is prophesying before the fall of of, uh, Israel, his task was to expose their sin and to warn the northern kingdom that God's judgment was coming. He was to tell Israel that because of her sin, God would disown her for a time. That's really important. He would deal with Israel as if she was no longer his people. That's the language we see in Romans 9, right? Not my people. And how did God Want to illustrate this? Some of you guys know this. This is the most, this is one of those ministry assignments you're like, no, thank you, Lord. How many of you guys know the story of Hosea? Not not an easy ministry assignment for this particular prophet. God wanted to illustrate this truth through his prophet by commanding him to marry a prostitute, a harlot by the name of Gomer, the worst name in the Bible. I know, you think Gomer, you're like, that does not sound like a girl's name. But Gomer and Hosea had three children with very unique names. God told them to give his children very unique names. Jezreel, which means God will sow, which was, a, which was an obvious warning of this scattering that was about to take place. The second child, a daughter, was to be called lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. No mercy. So God would have no mercy on Israel when he brought the Assyrians upon them. And the third child, a son, was to be called Lo-Ami, which means not my people. A very ominous statement. The sonship of Israel was about to be taken away. She would be dealt with as though she were no longer God's chosen nation. This is a serious time in Israel's history, isn't it? That type of language is so, so powerful. No longer my son, God says. Now, that's chapter 1 of Hosea's prophecy. Chapter 2 is filled with hope. After a time of chastening, God promised that he would restore Israel to a place of blessing. So those who were shown no mercy in the future would be shown mercy. Those who were declared not my people would later be called my people. Now, here's the trick about this. Nowhere in the prophecy of Hosea are Gentiles mentioned. So why is Paul going to Hosea to teach this? Here's what we learn. In the process of the Israelites receiving this divine discipline, the Israelites of the northern kingdom were so absorbed into the Gentile nations that they were scattered into, they essentially became Gentiles. They had been Israelites, but they were so scattered and lost and absorbed into these Gentile nations, they became non Israelites. That's what's going on here. They were the lost tribes. And yet there was hope. In spite of becoming Gentiles, God promises to restore to them God's favor and blessings. These not my people would someday again become my people. It's good news. Hosea then is commanded not to divorce Gomer, even though she is a harlot, even though she's unfaithful. In fact, she's so unfaithful, she ends up as a slave in the marketplace. And God says to, go, says to Hosea, I want you to go and buy her back. And buy her back, not as a slave, but as a beloved wife. And you're like, what? Who does that? Who does that? God. It's exactly what God does. His unfaithful, adulterous people, Israel. God goes back and buys them out of slavery and brings them back and says, you're my beloved again. Wow. It's a gracious God. But talk about a difficult sermon illustration, right? Wow but a vivid word picture of just how gracious God is. So come back to Romans 9 now. What Paul does here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is take that principle in dealing with Israel and applies it to the Gentiles in his day. If God could declare heathen Israelites to be Gentiles and then later to call them his people once again, he could do the same with people born as Gentiles. That's us. He can make a non-Israelite an Israelite. It's amazing stuff. He has the power and sovereign authority to do that. This is the surprise of this particular passage. It's all about a gracious, compassionate, merciful God who calls sinners to himself, who pays the price to buy them out of slavery and makes them his bride, his object of love and grace. Once we were not loved, folks, but now we're loved. Once we were not his people, but now we're sons and daughters of the living God amazing stuff. Okay, one last passage to look at. Isaiah. Look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like that of the sand of the sea, it is the what? The remnant. Some translations say it is only the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, and that's just another way of saying the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angelic hosts that emphasizes God as creator, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a posterity or descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So Paul shows us here, listen, The idea of of God's remnant is not a new thing in the first century. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to the time of Isaiah. It was spoken of back then. Though the number of the Israelites in Isaiah's day were like the sand of the sea, only a small number were actually believing Israel, a remnant. And even that small amount was only a remnant by God's grace and because of his faithfulness to his promises that he'd given to the patriarchs. Here's the primary point. Look at verse 29. The primary point that Paul wants to make here is this. We need to pay attention to this even today. If God had dealt with the Jews as their sins deserved, there would be nobody saved at all. There would be no remnant whatsoever. They would be no better in their hearts than the people of Sodom or Gomorrah who were completely wiped off off the face of the earth by fire. Folks, that's true of us. This is what Paul's trying to tell us. Do you not understand? Not only should you not feel entitled, but understand here, were, were it not for God's grace, had He not intervened in your life, called you to Himself, made you alive, justified you, your hearts would be no better than the people who were wiped out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you have a problem with that, you're like, "No, I don't believe that. I'm sorry. I'm not that bad. You haven't understood the depth of your sin yet. And you haven't understood the depth of God's grace yet. Be careful lest you say, "That group of people way worse than me." Be careful. That's Paul's point here. Learn from this. Apart from God's marking us out as vessels of his mercy, apart from his calling in our lives, apart from his intervention, you and I would be sitting here today under his fiery wrath, like Sodom and Gomorrah. So stay humble and stay grateful and worship him with all of your life for what he's done for you. But in terms of Israel, God is faithful. He has preserved a remnant. Why? So that all the, ble- all the promises that he made in the Old Testament that they will, still be, they will still come true. He will still be faithful to those things. By the way, Paul's starting to warm us up for all that's coming in chapter 11 about the Jews. He will be faithful to those promises. But know this, where there is a believing remnant of Jews, there is hope. There is hope. And that hope doesn't depend upon large numbers of Jewish believers, because there's not. What it depends upon is what? God's mercy. He will maintain his remnant. Amen. I'm going to close with this. A couple weeks ago, I was, I was reading in the book of 2 Samuel, the story of Mephibosheth. It's got to be one of the harder words to say. Say it out loud, because you want to do it, so say it with me. Mephibosheth. Very good. Who was the son of Jonathan and the grandson of King Saul. And after the death of Jonathan and Saul on Mount Gilboa, David comes in, he solidifies his reign as the king of Israel, Now, you history geeks, you know that whenever kings, the throne changes hands, the new king usually puts to death the family of the old king. That's standard operating procedure in the ancient world. Why? Because you don't want a coup later on. You don't want some young man to grow up and take vengeance for his father or try to overthrow you, so you just execute everybody. And that is standard operating procedure in the ancient world. But in the case of Saul, there was one grandson named Mephibosheth who was crippled in both of his feet. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David, rather than putting him to death, shows him extravagant mercy. Here's what David says to him. Do not fear. That's the first thing he says because there would have been great fear. Mephibosheth came before the king expecting to die. He says, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you For the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. And he, Mephibosheth, prostrated himself and said to David, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Do you hear the surprise in his words? He expected to die. But instead, he got grace. He's surprised. He's he's stunned that the king of Israel would do that for him. This was a man who recognized he deserved nothing. By ancient standards, he deserved to be put to death. But from David, who we know is in so many ways a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, from David, he receives grace. And not just plain old regular grace, extraordinary grace. All the land that your grandfather owned, it's yours. And I want you to come and sit at my table with me. The king's table. Wow. Do you see the parallel with us? You and I have a whole lot in common with this this crippled man. We weren't crippled necessarily in our feet, but we were crippled in our hearts. We've been helpless and hopeless, deserving death. We've been spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. And as we come before the king, we deserve the worst, don't we? We deserve his wrath, but instead we're lavish with grace. Here's, Here's my big point this morning that grace that's been lavished upon you should surprise you. It should stun you. It should overwhelm you with gratitude. Just as much as it surprised and stunned mephibosheth God is a God of surprises. The Lord has demonstrated the greatness of His power and the kindness of His heart towards us. He has called us to Himself. He has called us into His kingdom. And because of Christ, we have been given a great inheritance like Meshibbetheth. Not only that, we've been invited to sit at the king's table and feast with him for all eternity. Think about that. Not only that, even now, today, we can delight in the Lord. We can enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And he doesn't just put up with us, he delights in us as well. We've gone from enemies to friends. We've gone from those who were like Sodom and Gomorrah to being sons and daughters of God. So how does this impact you? This ought to impact us in a radical way in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way we worship, in the way we see one another, in the way we love, and in the way we serve. God is a God of surprises. Be stunned. Be surprised. Be overwhelmed by his kind nature. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for... Your amazing love. Lord, I pray that we would resist letting your grace become ordinary in our lives. And it's hard, Lord. I'll just confess, it's hard in this crazy world we live in. It's so hectic and there's so many things to do. And our phones and our social media and so many things, Lord, that intrude into our our worship of you. Father, help us. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will help us to resist complacency, to resist entitlement, but to recognize that you have done a great work by including the Gentiles in your eternal plan. And were it not for that, Lord, were it not for your grace, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, if we've, uh, if we've brushed that off this morning, I pray that you'll make it really real in our hearts right now. That we would come to grips with the full understanding of what it means to receive your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We love you.